0: Well, if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 26. We'll be in chap- verses 1 to 32, covering the whole chapter. Our Lord Jesus Christ was called, by, was called many things by his enemies for his teachings and ministry. His enemies said that he was out of his mind. They said that he was performing miracles and signs by the power of Beelzebub, namely, by the power of the prince of demon. They asserted that Jesus had a demon and was insane. You know, as followers of Jesus, it is not uncommon for the world to view us as perhaps a little bit crazy, a little bit insane for our beliefs. You see, in the eyes of the world, we are considered foolish and dumb. And in this day and age, they may assume that we are irrational or illogical. And that's just generally because this world has a very different way of viewing this world than the Christian world view. We are not to be surprised, nor, are, nor should we be afraid, nor should we be ashamed of the gospel if we are different. Jesus said that if the world hates you, know that it has first hated him before it hated you. And so today, we're going to talk about how to be out of your mind. How to be out of your mind. Uh, this idea of being out of your mind is taken from chapter 26, verse 25. Uh, we'll get to that portion of Scripture. But essentially, Pontius Festus, the governor, asserted that the Apostle Paul is out of his mind, and that he was insane. Now, why would Festus say such a thing about the Apostle Paul? We'll we'll answer that question as we uncover this chapter. But to give you a little bit of a context, to remind you of the context of Acts chapter 26, if you've been keeping track and following a series of messages from the book of Acts, you should already know that Paul was arrested unjustly and that he's been standing before different groups of people, testifying what God has done in his life, and making his defense for his innocency before different groups of people. And now, Paul will stand in this chapter before King Agrippa and thousands of influential and powerful people in the audience hall. If you've ever read through chapter 26... In advance, you may notice that Paul's defense before Agrippa seems rather repetitive from his previous defenses before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin's, uh, and Felix, and Festus. But perhaps the repetitiveness may offer us a practical lesson to reflect on. Perhaps most of us will never stand on trial, and make a defense for ourselves multiple times in our lives. Perhaps, in some sad situation, when given an opportunity to make a defense for our Christian faith, some may just surrender, even in their first trial. And perhaps they surrender in their second trial, or maybe the third trial, or fourth trial, and so forth. And perhaps they will never have the bravery and the courage to talk about Jesus. But the Apostle Paul here, he continued to stand firm. He continues to be bold and courageous for his faith and is in his integrity, trial after trial after trial. He never backed off. And the reason is precisely what he says in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel." Brothers and sisters, can you honestly say? that you are not ashamed of the gospel before the watching world that sees us as foolish people. See, the apostle Paul used every opportunity to bear witness about Christianity, to bear witness for Christ faithfully, anytime, anywhere, in every circumstance, to the best of his ability, to the glory of God, regardless of the consequence And likewise, we should imitate Paul's example in our lives. And in Paul's example, we can see why Festus said that he was out of his mind. And that's because Paul had a rather different mindset than Festus's. Paul here in this passage, he's going to talk about, again, his testimony, his old life. And then he's going to also talk about his transformation and how he met the Lord Jesus Christ and how after meeting Jesus Christ, he was never the same again. That's why he was out of his mind in the eyes of the world. And so now we get into the exposition of this passage. So if you have your Bible in your hand, follow along with me. Here in verses 1 to 3, we're given a setup of Paul's defense. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. You see here, after Festus in the previous passage gave a brief presentation regarding the nature of the hearing of Paul, Agrippa grants the Apostle Paul the permission to make his defense. And certainly, Paul is always ready to make his defense as he stretches out his hand and make his defense with confidence. You see, this lifting of the hand is a rather dramatic scene. We must remember that Paul is a prisoner, or more accurately, he's, he's in custody right now. And as he's lifting up his hand, he's also lifting up the chains that are strapped on his hands, linking him to the Roman guards. And as he's lifting up the chains, you can probably hear the clanging noises. And in verses 2 to 3, in this part of the text, Paul here says that he's given a special privilege and honor to present his defense against the Jews, Jewish, the Jews' accusation before King Agrippa. So Paul says here, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. See, Paul considers this moment fortunate as he gives his defense. And majority of the time, this word fortunate is, can be translated as blessed, which can mean fortunate or happiness. Paul here is characterized by joy and that he is blessed by God to be able to stand before the king and also to thousands of people to give his defense. Now, why is Paul so fortunate here? Why is he fortunate to stand before King Agrippa? Well, Paul is fortunate. He feels fortunate because Agrippa is familiar with the Jewish practice. So he's rather knowledgeable and he's qualified to hear his case. He would not be He would not have a prejudice against Paul like the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. He would not be careless or nonchalant like the Roman governors. Agrippa has been known for being pious about the Jewish practice, even as a king. And so that's why Paul here compliments the king that he knows and he's familiar with the custom and controversies of the Jews. That is the Jewish practice. And so therefore, Paul here begs He begged Agrippa to be patient with him as he makes a rather lengthy and detailed defense. You see, Paul's defense is a bit distinct and unique from all of his other defenses. Uh, He is speaking directly to King Agrippa and the rest of the people are listening. And what is Paul's end goal here in this defense? Why does he tell Agrippa to be patient with him? Well, his goal is to point King Agrippa to the Lord Jesus Christ. He, wasn't, he wanted to point the king to the true king, King Jesus, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus is the messianic hope that, that King Agrippa may have been anticipating. And the way Paul is going to get to his end goal is to connect his hardship and his story ultimately to Jesus. Jesus. And furthermore, as we are going to look at this passage, Paul begins with the resurrection and concludes with the resurrection in verses 8 and 23. And so his focus is convincing the people and also conv- convincing Agrippa about the resurrection of Jesus. That is the theme here. And Paul is going to turn his hearing, he's going to turn his trial into a testimony, an opportunity to tell King Agrippa about Jesus Christ. And so he begins his defense with a story, his upbringing, by talking about his old mindsets. He had an old mindset that rejected Christ, and we see that in verses four to thirteen. Paul says here in verses four to five, "My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify." that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. I have lived as a Pharisee. So just two very brief comments about, about these two texts. All of Paul's life, Paul has been a Jew. And he grew up in Jerusalem as a Jew. And second, Paul was a pious Pharisee. He was a part of a group known for its strictest, strictness of Judaism. So Paul's faith as a Jew was not a violation of his Jewish heritage. He was a Jew. He was a faithful Jew. He was as faithful as he can be. And then in verses 6 to 8, Paul explains that he's on trial because of the resurrection of the dead. And he says this, And now I stand on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. See, notice that he keeps talking to the king directly. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? See, God, many, many years ago, many, many years ago, God made a promise to the Jewish forefathers, which Paul had hoped in. You see, the 12 tribes of Israel, you can read all about that in the Old Testament, but the 12 tribes of Israel also hoped to attain this promise. It is specifically this hope that Paul is being accused by the Jews. And Paul speaks to everyone in the room and asks a rhetorical question. Why is this thought incredible? Or some translations will render that as Unbelievable. Why is it thought incredible? Why is it thought unbelievable by any of you that God raises the dead? See, it's not that the Jews did not believe in the resurrection because they did, except for another group called the Sadducees. Um, But for most of the Jews, they did believe in the resurrection since it is taught in the Old Testament. But Paul is in prison because of his hope in the resurrection. Specifically, that Paul proclaimed that Jesus Christ is the hope of our resurrection. The Jews were in unbelief that the God whom they worship and believe would raise up Jesus, whom they hated and rejected from the dead. And so, in some some of the stories, these Jews created a conspiracy whereby the apostles came and stole Jesus' body, according to Matthew chapter 28. And earlier in our study in the book of Acts, the apostles Peter and John were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in Solomon's portico. And then Luke tells us that the Jewish leaders, they're greatly annoyed. Why were they annoyed? It's because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the Jews here were angry at Paul for teaching this kind of message of Jesus to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, around the Mediterranean Sea. We have seen that in Paul's first and second and third missionary journey in the book of Acts. But likewise... Just like the Jews were angry at the Christians, the apostles were preaching the resurrection of Jesus, so Paul, in his old life, he used to be angry and he used to be furious that the apostles were teaching this kind of message. This was all before he became a follower of Jesus. This was his old mindset. And so Paul teleports us back to Acts chapter 9, the time before his conversion, as we and we see that Paul tells us about his testimony, verses nine to eleven, Paul says, "I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. And not only locked up many of the saints in prison after after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them." And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. See, just as the Jews opposed the preaching of Jesus and the, resur- the resurrection by the apostles, Paul was also convinced from his Jewish beliefs to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul here demonstrated his opposition against the Christians, the early followers of Jesus, with action. What did he do? When he was in Jerusalem, he arrested and locked up believers after receiving authority from the chief priests. He also supported the death of many believers, such as the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He persecuted and ravaged the early church. He punished them. He made them blaspheme against the Lord Jesus Christ. And he persecuted them in raging fury, even to foreign cities like Damascus. Paul was a very pious Pharisee, but he was also an enraged religious man. See, in Paul's mind, before he became a follower of Jesus, what he did to these Christians, at least in his thought, was actually a righteous indignation. He thought he was doing God's will. That was his old mindset that rejected Christ. And now in verses 12 to to 18, it's actually a recount of Acts chapter 9, and Paul continues his testimony here. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. And at midday, O king, see, he continues to talk to King Agrippa. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journey with me. And if you recall, this was Paul's famous trip known as the road to Damascus. And it was on the road to Damascus whereby uh, Paul meets Jesus in a rather dramatic way or more like God, he sovereignly meets Paul in his own terms. And it was on the road to Damascus, whereby Paul experienced a mindset that was transformed by Jesus, a mindset that is transformed by Jesus. Paul continues here, And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, that was Paul's name in the Hebrew and so he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. See, Jesus said to Paul in verse 14 that it is hard for you to kick against the goats or the sting. Now, what does this mean? The, well, the goats can also be translated as a sting. Uh, it carries a cultural context. Uh, This is a common agricultural image in which a a sharp pointed stake was used to prod an ox in the right direction. And so in a similar way, Paul was impelled by the Lord into a new direction, different than the one in which he was heading. In other words, Paul cannot and he should not fight against the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so similarly, for all of us, for those of us who are in Christ, when God saves sinners, he will give them a new direction in life. We may not all have a dramatic conversion like Paul, but the principle of Paul's conversion is related to all of us. None of us sought after God. Was Paul seeking after God? No, he wasn't. He was persecuting Christians. None of us sought for God. We don't seek God on our own terms. In fact, it's God who meets us on His own terms. Sometimes He may even strike us so that our eyes will be turned to Him. And when God changes us, and and, and when we have truly encountered the Lord Jesus, He changes the course of our direction forever. Forever. He regenerates us and causes us to be born again into the newness of life as a new creation. He removes from us the heart of stone that was hardened towards God, and He has given us a heart of flesh. He has given us a new heart with a new desire to love and obey Christ. That ought to be the nature of a born-again Christian, and that when you genuinely have saving faith in Jesus, your life will never be the same ever again. God changes you. He flips your world upside down. You're walking this way, but God changes you, you will walk this way. That was Paul's life. And here, in verses 16 to 18, we're given the summary of Paul's ministry to both Jews and Gentiles. Verses 16 to 18, You see, after encountering the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus gave Paul a new purpose and a new direction in life. Jesus appointed Paul as a servant and witness to the things in which he has seen Jesus and to to those in which Jesus will appear to him. And that such purpose and direction given by Christ would put Paul in opposition against those who wanted to kill him because he preached the one whom he used to persecute. And Jesus promised that he will deliver Paul from his people, that is the Jews, and from the Gentiles. He would deliver him from, from death, ultimately. We know he was persecuted in one way or another, but ultimately, to deliver him from death during, during the, throughout the book of Acts. And that ultimately, it is the Gentiles to whom Jesus is sending Paul what was he supposed to do? He sent Paul to, to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. In other words, Christ told Paul to preach repentance and faith in Jesus, that the Gentile would become followers of Christ and that such change would be a night and day difference, going from darkness to light and going from the power of Satan to God. And for what purpose? For what purpose is there in teaching repentance and faith in God? Well, there are two blessings that Paul talks about here, or Jesus talks to Paul here. There are two blessings that a sinner receives in salvation. First, the forgiveness of sins. And second, that they may receive a place or an inheritance, which is the more accurate translation, that they may receive an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus and what is this inheritance? What is this place that that Jesus is talking about? Well, I think Paul, Peter talks about it in First Peter chapter one, verses thirteen, uh, chapter one verses three to four. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This inheritance is that we will receive a new resurrected body in eternal heaven, in the new heaven and new earth. That is a blessing reserved for those who have faith in Jesus. And so Paul, he has explained his story of conversion. He has explained how his life was transformed by Jesus. And after meeting Jesus, His mind was transformed, and now Paul has a new mindset for the sake of the gospel. A new mindset for the sake of the gospel. See, because Jesus gave Paul a commission, Paul tells King Agrippa that he was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Paul says, verses 19 to 20, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the regions of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with the repentance. You see, notice the the double negative here in verse 19. He was not disobedient, which is an emphasis here is emphatically telling us that Paul certainly obeyed Jesus. He obeyed Jesus even unto death. He didn't rebel against what he believed to be true. He didn't disobey Christ, even though his life was hard. He went through trials and suffering. And that should be the mark of a Christian, that you go through suffering. Because... Paul says that all those who desire to live a godly life will experience persecution. Paul was sold out to following Jesus and to fulfilling his ministry, his call to ministry. Paul proclaimed the gospel to those in Damascus and to all those places in Jerusalem and the Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. See, the Bible says, God said in Isaiah 45, verse 22, to turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the world, for I am God, and there is no other. There's no other God out, gods out there. There's only one God, and this God is calling. If you don't know Christ, God is calling you, turning, calling you to turn to him and be saved. See, before God saved us and caused us to be born again, our backs were turned to God because we were walking in the path of rebellion and sin. But now, when we have repented, we do a U-turn, we turn our backs against sin and rebellion, we turn towards God and know this God and be known by this God. William Barclay, he makes a rather beautiful description of the Christian life. Uh, Before we became Christians and after we became Christians, he said this, and I quote, we face God in such a way that the God, whom, that the God we forgot or whom we banished from life becomes the one person who fills all our horizon and who dominates all our life. The God who was nothing to us becomes the God who is everything to us. Let me say that again. The God who was nothing to us becomes the god who is everything to us end quotes i wonder if that describes who you are brothers and sisters before you became a christian and after you became a christian while it can be exciting to serve christ in our lives we often face difficulties and obstacles and certainly paul was no exception see the jews here weren't pleased with what paul was doing Paul says here in verse 21, For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And to this day I have the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he will proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. See, the Jews were trying to stop Paul from obeying his heavenly vision. They were trying to stop Paul from doing what God, whom they worship, has called Paul to do. The Jews were rather offended that Paul preached the gospel not only to the Jews, but also to, to, to the Gentiles, as if the Gentiles were of equal level as the Jews, who also needed repentance and to trust in Jesus. See, that's why if you know anything about the Jews, they despise the Gentiles. They don't want to be on equal level as them. And yet, despite the trials and hardships that Paul went through in his gospel ministry, he had a divine assistance, which is God himself. He says, to this day, I have the help that comes from God. And so Paul, with courage, testifies to all people, small and great, in a wide social spectrum of people, to all kinds of people, because the gospel has no social and economic boundaries. He preached the gospel to the Jews, Gentiles, pagans, uh, the jailers, the Roman jailers, to the Greeks, to barbarians, to the Greek philosophers, to kings and governors and tribunes, every sort of people, because the gospel of salvation is for all people, right? And this message that came out of Paul's mouth is nothing but what the Old Testament, the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. What's the message that the prophets and Moses said would come to pass? That the Christ, the Messiah, must suffer. And that Christ, by being the first fruit of the resurrection, will proclaim light both to the Jews and to the Gentiles, See the death and resurrection of Jesus is the message that Paul proclaimed in his gospel ministry to everybody and to anybody, even to the to King Agrippa, and that is the message of salvation that Paul explains in the New Testament letters, and that's the message that the apostles consistently proclaim in the Book of Acts. And so, in the eyes of the world, this message is rather foolish and stupid in in their eyes which leads us to the final mindset that Paul had. He had a mindset, he had a mind set on the sobering truth. How many of you love to be interrupted in the middle of your speech? You see, as Paul was probably wrapping up his defense, Festus here speaks and he accuses Paul of being insane. And so he says here, Luke says here, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Why did he say that? Why did he say that in this particular section of Paul's defense? You see, the idea of the, of the resurrection has been mentioned in Paul's defense two times. But Festus, he did not seem to mind knowing and believing in a form of resurrection. See, Festus had a, a bit of a Greek mindset. In, in Greek thinking during that culture, he may have an understanding of a spiritual resurrection in the future. That is, it, the immortality of the soul, but not the literal bodily and physical resurrection. And therefore, Festus interrupts Paul's speech and calls him crazy. Calls him crazy. Quite possibly, as Paul was in custody in Herod's court, uh, in Herod's, in Herod's uh, praetorium or Herod's headquarters, he may have seen a stack of scrolls and parchments that Paul had, a bunch of these books. And however, Festus believes that Paul's studies have driven him mad, like a little mad scientist. But Paul responds to Festus in this way verses 25 to 26, I am not out of your, my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words, or I am speaking sobering truth in other translations. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has, been, has but this has not been done in a corner. So, with respect to the most, the most excellent Festus, he den- Paul denies that he's crazy. But rather, he's affirming that he is spoke, speaking sobering truth, rational and true words. We have learned that Paul was a sobering man, he was a thorough man, he was a logical and rational man, he was a very persuasive man. And then Paul then appeals to King Agrippa, who knew the Jewish custom. And not only that, Paul speaks boldly to King Agrippa that these things, that these events pertaining to the resurrection were public enough and did not escape his notice. King Agrippa knew about the literal resurrection, he knows about the prophets and the teachings of the Old Testament. He is capable of understanding and appreciating the claims of Paul and quite possibly. King Agrippa may, might have knew about the life of Jesus. He might have been still alive or around during that time. And hence, Paul says to, verse, says to King Agrippa in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. See, King Agrippa is not like Festus. He's not a Roman, per se. King Agrippa is familiar with the Jewish custom he has some acquaintances with Moses, if Moses and the prophets. And so in the question here that Paul put, gives to King Agrippa puts him in a dilemma. He's given a decision to decide whether to believe in Paul or not. And that if, he truly believed, and that if King Agrippa truly believes in the prophet, that he should believe in Paul's message based on his testimony and conversion and commission. And also based on the, what the message of the Old Testament has talked about. He should also believe that Jesus is the Messiah because the prophets pointed to Christ. But if he denied the prophets, he would be unloyal to the Jewish heritage. It would be unthinkable of him to deny the basic Jewish beliefs about the prophets. See, what's rather ironic in this atmosphere, as I think about it, what's rather ironic in this atmosphere is that King Agrippa is actually the one on trial before Paul with a gospel message. What is your decision, King Agrippa? What are you going to do about the prophet? Do you believe it? You, I know you believe it. However, unwilling to humble himself, he chose to dodge the obvious question by responding to Paul, in a short time, would you rather, would you persuade me to be a Christian? In such a short time. Certainly Paul is a persuader. He tries to persuade and convince sinners to come to faith in Christ. And with such a long speech in such a short time. Agrippa senses the pressure from Paul to become a Christian. But he would not. Agrippa the king as the king was unwilling to be persuaded to follow the Messiah. That was his pride. His pride in position as the king. But Paul doesn't get discouraged here from Agrippa's response. You must remember that his testimony wasn't just heard by Agrippa and Festus. It was by thousands of soldiers in the hall. It says, Paul says here, With whether short or long, I would to God "'that not only you, but also all who hear me this day "'might become such as I am, except for these chains.'" What a privilege and opportunity, right? to proclaim the gospel before thousands of people. The seed has been planted in each person in that room who was listening. They heard Paul's testimony. They heard the message of the gospel. And who knows if there's at least one person who believed in that audience. And even if everyone rejected Paul's message, his ministry would not be considered a failure. Why is that? Because ministry success is not defined by results, but faithfulness. In the eyes of the world, and perhaps even some Christians who have a worldly mindset instead of an eternal mindset, Paul was a failure because he didn't win anybody to Christ, he didn't grow the church. However, in the eyes of God, he was successful because he was a faithful witness. He was faithful because everything that Paul went through in his hardship, Jesus remains the center of his life and in his testimony. So the question is, as we reflect upon Paul's life, is Jesus the center of everything you do and say? Does he saturate and consume your whole being? And when people look at you, brothers and sisters, do they see Christ in your life and perhaps see some a little bit of foolishness in you for following this Jesus. So, so here Luke concludes with the king and the governor and Bernice, the queen, leaving the room. Then the king and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So they, they recognize that Paul was innocent. He doesn't deserve death and punishments. But here, we're not given a final verdict about whether Paul's innocent. But well, we know he's innocent. But, but Paul is still in a situation where he's treated unjustly. But, but God's providence will still remain. Because here, Paul wanted to go to Rome. And he gets to go to Rome. That's why he appealed to Caesar. And so as he appealed to Caesar and, and he goes to Rome, certainly that journey to Rome will not be easy. And we'll learn about that in chapter 27. But as I, as, as I wrap up, we have seen how Paul was out of his mind in the eyes of Festus, even in the world. We have learned the mind that Paul had before. We have learned about the, the mind that Paul had before before he became a Christian and after he became a Christian. See, in our own lives, we need to remind it that we had an old mindset that rejected Christ. But when when you have met Jesus, our mindset was transformed by him. And that when we were transformed by Jesus, we have a new mindset for the sake of the gospel. We have a new direction in life. We desire to follow him and serve Jesus and obey him and love him. And regardless of what the world says about us, our mind will continue to be set on the rational and true words that is the sobering truth. We must remember, brothers and sisters, that the Christian message is crazy and insane in the eyes of the world. And as we have read during the Scripture reading, the gospel, the the cross of Christ, is only foolish and stupid to those who will perish in their sins because they have been blinded by the God of this world from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And I don't know how many of you know Christ this morning, but my friends, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian this morning, and that you're placing your hope in this life and in your own self, whatever it is achievement or idols or money or fame, truly, in the words of Jeremiah, you are the foolish one in the eyes of God. You can be like King Agrippa, you can be like Festus, and perhaps most of the people in the audience hall who had riches and fame and status, but all those things will be taken away from you immediately after you die. It is foolish to put all of our hope in this temporal life when you have to face the reality of eternity after this life, and that you need to know this truth that apart from faith in Christ— You will die in your sins and you will suffer the wrath of god for all of eternity in this place called hell however the good news is this that christ died to pay the penalty of your sins and that he was raised from the dead to prove that he was who he claimed to be he is the god who came to rescue you and that you are to place your faith in this savior turning from your sins and give your whole life to this God who, have, who gave his life to save sinners if you believe. But for those of us who have repented, who have believed in this message, this message of salvation is the sobering truth. This word of God is the sobering truth. This is the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God. And that this message that we have is the power of God for salvation. So brothers and sisters, when you willingly adopt a mindset that is committed to the gospel, your lives become living testimony to the power of Christ's resurrection. You're called to be different, you're called to be holy, you're called to stand out, and you're called to make an eternal impact in your surrounding, whether at university or a workplace or, or your family members or friends, Your, your calling might draw stairs. From your friends it might raise eyebrows and you might even elicit whispers from people saying that we are out of our minds but let's remember the world doesn't define us the world doesn't define you and me your identity is rooted in christ so as you step out this week be bold in your faith don't be shy about being out of your mind for, for the sake of christ for in truth, you are not. You are grounded in the most profound wisdom and that you are guided by the truth of God's word. And so may you boldly live out your transformed mindsets and continually seeking to make a difference in the lives of those around you. And when you share your faith with others, don't apologize for your Christian faith because you know, because knowing you know that you carry the message that has the power to rescue sinners from darkness into light and from the power of Satan to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your message. We thank you for your word. And that it is this word of truth, the sovereign truth that we need. Lord, we're called not to be ashamed of the gospel. And Lord, I myself would admit that we all fall short, myself included. That there are times when we may have shrinked from Sharing our faith and our testimony with others. We may have strength in fear, or maybe we have strength in embarrassments. Uh, Maybe we have strength because we don't want to offend people and tell others the truth. Lord, if that is us, forgive us, cleanse us. May the Holy Spirit empower us all the more to be bold in our faith. And I pray and I ask that you would help us to adopt this new mindset for the sake of the gospel, and to pursue Christ all days of our life, even if it means being called out as foolish or out of our minds. But even if we are, we do it all for your glory. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.